And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. It is indeed Friday. Thank you, you little climate munchkin for that introduction. We are going to be talking about a number of things today, crazy climate topics. It has been a crazy week. We've seen uh, wildfires in Maui being blamed by climate change or on climate change. We've seen uh, all kinds of posturing in the media for that. We've seen uh, the, the, the climate cult win a lawsuit in Montana. Uh, it, it's just nuts out there. So we're going to try to uh, make sense of the nuttery. And with me today are our two favorite make sense of nuttery people, uh, Linnea and Sterling Burnett, uh, who are going to be talking about those topics today. And in a little while, Dr. Judith Curry, our special guest today, will be joining us talking about the climate lawsuit in Montana, which she was a defender on. And also, um, she will be talking about, she'll take a deep dive into the whole hottest July ever. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so Sterling, I understand that you've got some trouble going on down there in Texas related to uh, energy. Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. So, uh, Earth. See, they shut him off. <laughs> energy saving warnings uh that that might be a signal for that i almost didn't turn on my light today uh yeah that, we didn't hear anything of what you said initially yeah ERCOT has issued energy saving warnings saying turn off all non-essential stuff so i almost didn't turn on my light today uh so if i go off uh it's because the power has gone out and they are actually being honest and blaming the lack of wind so wind makes up Almost 25% of Texas's rated capacity now, thanks to meddling politicians and subsidies. And yet it is producing, I can follow, you can follow this on the, on the uh, real-time uh, market. It's currently producing 6.5% of the power to the grid. Apparently not enough to keep Sterling engaged. Um, well, there you have it, folks. Proof positive that wind blows. <laughs> yeah. And solar's failing, too. It's, it's ramped up, but people don't realize that solar uh, loses power the hotter it gets. So anything above 77 degrees, it loses 0 0.03 to 0.05% of its power output. And yep. yesterday we were at 109 degrees. So oh, 20, yeah. 32 degrees above where it starts losing power. So. Right. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, that uh, apparently Sterling on. has been sacrificed on the altar of climate change. So he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> ah, he's back now, but. Yeah, you're in and out there, Sterling. Well, I, you know, I sympathize with you. But, you know, Texas always does everything bigger. And, you know, in this case, it looks like they're doing bigger with failures of green energy. Well, at least they're admitting, like I said, at least they're admitting that wind is the responsibility. Every story says low wind capacity, low wind. And, of course, the sun doesn't shine at night. So even when it's down in the 80s, uh, we're not getting power from that. I'm sorry, yeah. wind, wind doesn't blow in Texas during the summer. And yeah. that's when Texans need power the most. Right, of course. But, you know, they never thought that through when they put all that stuff in. Anyway, how's your power, Linnea? My power is just fine. <laughs> We're doing all right over here. Um, it has been sort of windy here, actually. So, well, yeah. if only the winds went that away, uh, I'd send it over to you, Sterling. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that's cool. Well, hopefully neither of you will drop out. Here, uh, where I'm at, power is also stable. The internet seems to be stable, too. Um, anyway, so let's get on to our first climate craziness of the week. So we have um, climate change misinformation wins in Montana. This is from my website, What's Up With That. This is a summary uh, by Gregory Reichstown, who's head of the CO2 Coalition. And he points out a number of things about this lawsuit that just simply flew right past the judge. The problem with a lot of people, even professionals and, and people that are intelligent and educated, like the judge in this case, who obviously has to be to become a judge, they just simply miss basic things related to climate. For example, as I understand it, the uh, data that these, uh, these folks presented to say that, you know, the climate in Montana is being destroyed and therefore the Constitution says we're supposed to have a livable, clean atmosphere and all this stuff. So therefore you have to grant us this, this lawsuit. They, they didn't use the whole data set of temperature, for example, and, and other things. They didn't show the whole picture. They cherry picked. They created lies of omission. Dr. Judith Curry will be talking about this with us in just a few minutes when she joins us. Uh, but yeah, it just they have been pushing on this again and again and again at different states. I'd say that there's probably probably close to a dozen different climate lawsuits launched by children, supposedly, you know, it's really their handlers, but uh, saying that our future is being destroyed by climate change. This is the first one that's been successful um, at winning, and it's only been successful because they created lies of omission and cherry picking. Guys, what do you think? Well, I'm going to disagree that that's why it's it's been successful. They do the cherry picking in every forum that they've come up with, and they've all been defeated or or are not accepted so far. The reason the reason why and it's it happened in Montana and it's unique to Montana. I don't think everyone says, "Oh, sets president, set president." No, Montana's unique in its constitution. It says people have a right to. A clean and healthy environment. Yeah. And uh, there's Sterling again being... <laughs> he, he's, uh, you know, Sterling, if you have any applications open on your computer or whatever, you might think about closing those. Sometimes get in the way. They draw more power. Dr. Yeah, Judith no. Curry joins us now. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, we're going to be talking about the Montana climate lawsuit in depth here in a few minutes, but I want to just ask if you have any quick, you know, short soundbite type comments. Um, well, just hello, everybody. Um, I want to thank everybody who's bought my book so far, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. After the last podcast, I saw a nice spike in sales at Amazon. Um, I appreciate that. And also check out my blog, Climate Etc., judithcurry.com. I have an article um, about what's going on with the summer's crazy weather and climate. Yeah, this is a good book. I have a copy of it. It is, um, it, it's truly a yeoman's work that you did there, Judith, uh, putting together all of these, these sensible arguments. Of course, you know, sensible arguments on climate change generally don't go together. They don't like the sensible arguments on the other side, which is exactly why they've been out there trying to destroy this book you know, basically saying, don't buy it, it's terrible, blah, 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 you know. But I would say to anyone who really wants to understand what the whole climate change debate is about and what the real risk and uncertainties are, this book is something you should have in your repertoire. Um, so, yes, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to get on to some other crazy climate news next. Uh, the next one is Maui fires are PG&E deja vu all over again. Get this. Now, you know, the media this week has been, past week, uh, mostly last week, I immediately jumped on, it's climate change, it's climate change, it can't be anything but climate change, because they can't think beyond the end of their nose. But get this, the people in Hawaii are, were shortchanged. The Wall Street Journal reported Wednesday that Hawaiian Electric, the biggest power supplier in the state, focused on shifting to renewable energy sources to combat climate change rather than spending money to address fire risk around its power lines. And that is exactly what happened in 2018 with PG&E with the campfire that destroyed the town of Paradise. They neglected 
maintenance. And the same scenario happened. High winds, it damaged power lines, the power line sparked, it started the fire, the high winds made a blowtorch and incinerated a town. Exact same scenario. These green, chasing these green things are going to be the death of us all, in my opinion. Well, another major factor is the grass, uh, the invasive grass that they've grown up there. Right. And so the governor earlier this year announced $100 million additional dollars to fight climate change. Not a dollar of that went to ripping out non-invasive uh, grass, mowing, reducing invasive grass, uh, and replanting with native fire-resistant uh, plants or making sure that, say, fire hydrants had water in them. Uh, I wonder how many more lives would have been saved had they devoted a fraction, let's say half of half or 25 percent of that to uh, reducing the risk of wildfire, which have been which their officials, their own officials said this is a major risk, folks. Um, uh, instead of, you know, amorphous climate lawsuits, which they filed and uh, uh, studying climate change, you know, how much how many lives would have been saved? Had they actually uh, done things about combating wildfire rather than combating climate change? Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, the Los Angeles Times was one of the first um, outlets there that started mm -hmm. screaming climate change. But they had to eat crow yeah. this week. Now, let's look at the first one. Now, scroll down a little bit there, and you'll see the first column. If Maui fires don't wake up Americans to the climate emergency, nothing will. This was last week. Well... This week, they had to basically say, oh, well, it was ignored warnings and hubris and slow response fueling the deadliest wildfire of the century. You know, it's particularly satisfying to see the Los Angeles Times have to eat crow on themselves because, you know, it just this knee-jerk reaction to everything that's happening. It's climate change. It's climate change, you know. That's all they seem to be able to do. They don't seem to have the ability to think through and report accurately. They have to do that knee-jerk thing. And it's just really sad. Yeah, the New York Times also did the same thing where their initial report that they released was all about, you know, oh, this was almost certainly caused by climate change. Hurricanes are getting worse. Drought is getting worse. The usual suspects. Um, though it's the whole weather whiplash thing uh, that they try to claim, especially since this spring was one of the wetter springs in um recent Maui weather records. And so, you know, it, it's, that was pretty shameful to come out of the gate right with that. Uh, but they did end up publishing another story that attributed most of the problem to um, what appears to be almost the total lack of response at all from the local government. Yeah, right. And the local government, you know, they don't have any wind monitoring systems for the island. Uh, they, you know, uh, and, and the same thing happened with Paradise. There was no wind monitoring systems for that stuff. Um, and so the, and they didn't even bother to sound the sirens. Let's say uh, what the local government did have when it was an extensive siren network and they didn't, they didn't turn it on. Instead, what they did, they said, is they sent out text messages through the phone. Well, when your phone lines are down because they've on fire and your electricity is down, that don't help folks. Yeah, the same thing happened in Paradise. There was a something called a red system where you were supposed to get text messages. It failed miserably. And since then, they have put in sirens in Paradise, and they've been testing them regularly. So hopefully that'll help there. All right, next crazy topic, or not crazy topic. This one's actually sensible. This is uh, from Cliff Mass, who's a professor at the University of Washington. He is one of the best climate realists out there. And he basically came up with the real cause of the Maui wildfire disaster. And it really boils down to a localized wind event. In that graphic that you see there, you see the Maui Mountains. Well, basically, we had a fawn wind event that came across the top of the mountains and down. Fawn winds are when we have winds that come very rapidly downslope, and they warm up and dry out due to the compression of the air. This happens in Montana, uh, in the Rocky Mountains, many other places, too. So we had this fawn wind event coupled with the, uh, the dry grasses, the, the invasive grasses, uh, coupled with the winds associated with um, all of that 
breaking the power lines and then turning the fire into a blowtorch. And basically, since the it was downslope, it pushed everything out to sea. And this is why people could not escape from Lahaina. They had to basically dive into the sea to escape the flames. If you've seen the pictures from Front Street on Lahaina, a place I've been, I can tell you that it's it's just a devastating viewpoint. The you know all these abandoned cars right along the waterfront, and you know with no place to go. They had gridlock going on, not due to so many cars so much, but also due to the fire coming in and surrounding the town all at once. They just couldn't go anywhere. It's really tragic. So the real cause was weather, not climate. You know, someone mentioned over there in the comments that also they've been trying to turn Lahaina into. We talked about this last week, a 15-minute city. So that makes it harder to escape when wildfires come. Uh, you know, are they going to charge you when you cross the wrong zone to escape the wildfire? Uh, or will they have calming, you know, big speed bumps to, to uh, discourage you? It's, it's, it's madness. Yeah. Speaking of madness... We have a whopper this week from Vice President Kamala Harris. This was in the New York Post. One of our highest priority back then was to lower energy cost. Ugh. Really? How'd that work out? <laughs> I think that would be what you would call a pretty critical failure if that was the case. Yeah, I mean, you, you wrote about this, Linnea. Why don't you talk right, about I've it? Right. Yeah, I've written two reports on this doing analyses, um, one after the first year of Biden's presidency and one after the second year. And let's just say it just keeps going up. There has not been very much a reversal of that trend um, between your gas prices, which, of course, is the first thing that people think of when they think about their energy costs. But also the you know, you cannot ignore the cost of your electricity, which almost everyone says their utility bills are rising, um, including water bills and things like that, because, you know, you need infrastructure to to move that kind of stuff. Um, but also your grocery bill, you know, besides the inflation, there's also an energy inflation aspect to this. And if you can't, if it's too expensive to ship stuff, or if, if the prices are super high to ship stuff, then they're going to pass those costs down to the consumer and it's not the producer's fault. Oh, no, but it's also the cost of the fuel to harvest, right. you know, to plant yeah. and harvest, the cost of the fertilizers, which are all made up of fossil fuels, is all of it. And um, believe me, I know about my utilities right now. <laughs> That's yeah. Something like 50 some odd days of over 100. Not a record, uh, but but pretty good. And uh, today will be no difference. So my no. Uh, utilities are going up and they were going up higher than they would have been had we not added so much wind and solar. Dr. Curry, down. you're welcome to jump in if you have any uh, things to say about all of this. Well, you're covering it pretty well. Um, one of the issues is, you know, once you start installing significant amounts of wind and solar, um, and even if a lot of that gets subsidized, you have to maintain your fossil fuel plants 100% to back up. Okay, so so this is increasing the cost of electricity because you're, in effect, operating two power systems, <laughs> and you know you're going to be doubling the cost. Yeah. So, so so renewable, you know, wind and solar. People say it's free. It most definitely is not because of there's a lot of expensive infrastructure that has to surround it and you have to operate a parallel fossil fuel power plants. But sadly in Texas, that's not what we're doing. You'd, you'd think, I understand that you're supposed to, you got to have it backed up hundred percent, but what they've done in Texas is they've closed down probably seven or 8,000 megawatts of coal electricity in the past decade. At the same time as they're adding the wind and solar. So it's not even there for backup. Yeah. Uh, Texas is definitely living on the edge. <laughs> so far, yeah. they're hanging in there this summer. But wow. So let's go on to our next topic. Twitter climate alarmists are alarmed at the rise of free speech on Twitter. Look at this. These graphs. These are inverse hockey stick graphs. You know, uh, basically what's happened here is the climate alarmists have started to abandon Twitter because... All of a sudden, because when Musk bought the thing, people were allowed to express their opinions. Oh, no! 
gosh, the suppression ended and people started actually talking about climate in a reality way. But, you know, we climate alarmists can't have that. So rather than, uh, you know, deal with it, have honest discussions or whatever, we're out of here. Andrew Desler, one of the worst climate alarmists out there, he bailed. Uh, we hope that Dr. Michael Mann will soon bail because that'll I'll, I'll view that as a win. Get him off of Twitter. All right. Finally, we have one other thing. And that is, you know, a lot of talk about Hurricane Hillary coming in on the Baja Peninsula is going to produce a lot of rain in Southern California. Well, you know, interestingly enough, Hurricane Hillary is, um, you know, had a namesake. And that namesake is, um, can we have that page, please? Yeah, we got a page for this that I just want to show you because it's hilarious. Um, where we, um, apparently we don't have it. So let's just bail on that. All right. The, ba the Babylon Bee piece, yeah. Oh, there it is. There it is. Deaths caused by Hurricane Hillard are be labeled suicides. <laughs> now, if you don't understand this, there's some political uh, undertones on this that have to do with the history of the name Hillary. And I'm not going to say what those are, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions. <laughs> many, All right. many people associated with that name have died mysteriously attributed to suicide. That's what you say. I think they call it Arkansas. <laughs> Arkansas. All right. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about Biden and the possible UN climate emergency declaration. And then we're going to get to uh, Dr. Curry's discussions. Um, you know, this week, uh, this coming week, uh, Joe Biden is going to fly to Maui on uh, Monday. And on Monday, he's going to be possibly, at least by my read of the situation, possibly going to make a climate emergency declaration. He has been pushed and pushed and pushed on this ever since he started his presidency. And a week before last, he said, I've virtually declared a climate emergency. And he picked up a lot of angst and anger from the climate left on that because, well, why didn't you just go ahead and declare one? And his, you know, he's, he's being politically hesitant because he understands that if he does this, it's going to cause a firestorm, particularly with all the supposed pending lockdowns and everything else. And the climate lockdowns, we've already tried this during COVID. Nothing happened. We didn't get any benefits whatsoever from the climate before the climate from any reduced amount of travel, reduced amount of use of electricity and so forth and so on. So by my read of it, we might see him, you know, put himself on in downtown uh, Lahaina on Monday. And you know, with that background looking like disaster porn there, you know, which is the perfect optics for that kind of a thing, he might announce that there's a climate emergency declaration coming, uh, even though climate had nothing to do with that. Uh, any comments, guys? Well, it's a confluence of events that, that it is... Uh that would that progressives are using to push him to declare climate emergency remember there's the fire in, in uh, maui there's the unusual hurricane that might actually impact california and parts of the west with and then there is the heat wave the, you know let's be honest there has been a, a set of heat waves in various places across the globe that are extensive and and, and large and we heard, you know, you know, the propaganda about the Atlantic Ocean being hotter than ever. And the point is, it's all these events. If he's going to declare a climate emergency, this would be the sort of perfect time for him to do so. Standing amidst the ruins, talking about heat waves and unusual hurricanes and ocean warming and all these things. If you're not convinced now, you'll never be convinced. And uh uh, so it's time for the lockdowns. Right. And the lockdowns are kind of the one of the worst case scenarios that he could put into place with a climate emergency. Um, but what we discussed last week and what we discussed a little bit on in the tank is that the most likely thing that will come of this is just a huge shift of how much money is going towards um, green pet projects. Not that they aren't already getting enough money, but it can it will give the president like almost a wartime capacity to. Uh, shift 
funding from different departments into climate um, uh, projects. Of course, you know, no minute decrease in the amount of carbon, carbon dioxide emissions from the United States is going to uh, prevent hurricanes or wildfires or anything like that, but they don't care. Of I, I think don't. it'll be, I think it'll be worse than that. Um, if he declares it, I don't think he'll say you must stay in your homes, but he will ratchet up the appliance standards. Once again, he will shut down new drilling, no more leases because it's an emergency. So he can suspend laws that require them to offer lease sales. He will, um, uh, you know, speed up the uh, EV transition and uh, he might cancel some pipeline projects that are approved. You know, it, it's an emergency. We got to do it. So yeah. it's, it's, it's both carrots for green energy and sticks against fossil fuels. And that means people. You know, maybe he even says uh, we've got to uh, because he won't understand that eating local doesn't save uh, uh, the climate. Maybe they even issue region wide. You must eat locally. No transport. Right. Yeah. You know, Linnea, I was watching you yesterday on In the Tank and you had suggested that, um, you know, well, maybe the fossil fuel companies should just simply shut off the tap for a right. little while. And people know, and, pointed and out that that's the plot to Atlas Shrugged, and I actually yeah. haven't read yeah. Atlas Shrugged, but I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I suggested it a few weeks ago. I wish they'd do that. I wish they'd just say, that's it. We've, we've taken it. We're going to shut down and see how long before you start begging us to come back. At yep. least one state at a time. You know, let California feel it for a minute before they do it to all of us, please. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be great if that happened, you know? All right, so we're going to get to Dr. Curry now, and we've got two topics we're going to discuss with her, uh, held versus the Montana climate lawsuit, which she was a part of, and also the, the State of the Climate Summer 2023, the deep dive into all of the data and the craziness associated with some of the claims. Uh, welcome, Dr. Curry. First, I'd like to talk to you about this lawsuit in Montana. Now, this is the first successful one after many, many attempts around the world to uh, you know, have children as pawns, uh, you know, claim that their future is going to be impacted by climate change. Can you give us kind of a quick summary of what this lawsuit was all about, and and, and how it unfolded? Well, um, our children's trust has been in business for about ten years, and and their first big case that they filed was the so-called Juliana. Uh, lawsuit against the, the U.S. government, and this was filed under the Obama administration, and they tried to shovel it under the rug. They didn't like it. Um, it landed, you know, on the Trump administration's desk, and they got it um, thrown out or dismissed or something like that. Apparently, it's a zombie case. Some judge in Oregon is trying to bring it back, but um, so, so they've been at this a while. They, they've filed suits in pretty much every state in the U.S. Um, most, nearly all of them have been dismissed. There's a few that are still pending. And of course, the Montana is the only one that, that made it through. And the premise is that, you know, children's futures are being short-circuited and that they're have real damages, psychological injuries. And in some case, I haven't seen evidence of any real injury other than a barn burning down or something like that. Um, that they're but blaming. that wouldn't even be climate change, right? You know? <laughs> this is all weather. I mean, but they, I mean, this is how ludicrous it is. And most of it is pre-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, which is related to Pre the apocalyptic. <laughs> Pre <laughs> Free yeah. traumatic stress. And I like that. About well, what they expect. We have no future. The world's going to end in 30 years. You know, the whole Greta spiel. Um, and, and kids buy into that. They're very heavily influenced by that. Um, the rhetoric that the kids and young adults are exposed to are much worse than what we see as adults. Um, you know, they get it in the school. Some of this, you know, programmed by the National Education Association. Um, they get it on social media. They get it in 
in books. It, it's all over the place and it's pretty pervasive. And there's a large fraction of um, kids who feel this way and feel depressed. And it chimes in with the whole victim culture that's so popular, you know, and identity politics and, and all of this. It just sort of chimes in with all those social movements. And so, you know, the kids, you know, are pawns. Um, the, the particular plaintiffs in the Montana suit, this was filed in 2018. I think there were maybe 15 plaintiffs and the oldest one was 18 at the time and the youngest one was two years old. Um, the oldest one knew what she was doing. Most of the others didn't. I mean, it was almost certainly driven by their parents and their, you know, political activism. And so, you know, the kids, you know, being used as pawns here, um, you know, and, and that that's that's really reprehensible. I mean, that this whole movement to try to influence the kids is not only to influence the next generation of voters, but also there have been studies that show that kids who are alarmed and worried can influence their parents politically. So this is part of the strategy, um, you know, to develop political support for this. But, you know, they've gone overboard. Um, people who are scared and depressed, you know, aren't very useful, you know, in a, in a political environment. So they're now realizing that they need to sell hopeful alarm, <laughs> I think is the latest catchphrase. But, you know, this is all just part of this reprehensible social movement that we're caught up in. And on to the Montana case. I mean, this illustrates the the Montana State's Attorney's Office was completely ill-prepared for this. Um, I was brought into the case really at the last minute as an expert witness um, last September of last year. Um, apparently they had other expert witnesses previously, which apparently were a bit of a joke. I don't know who they were, but they brought in a new group of um, expert witnesses, which two others in addition to me, which were all credible. And I, you know, I wrote an expert report. Um, I was deposed in January. I was questioned by Julia Olson, who's the head of our children's trust, um, you know, and, and they brought in some big guns to try to knock me down. My written report was attacked by six witnesses and they even brought in Kevin Trenberth from retirement to try to take me, <laughs> uh, you know, but they didn't land a blow. And, and I went through nine hours of questioning and she was getting very frustrated and rather aggressive, um, you know, just seeing what my arguments were. And so I felt I had some pretty strong arguments against their case. Um, I was scheduled to testify. I had bought my tickets. Um, I was following the trial closely. And then on Thursday during the trial, I got a call from Montana's lawyer telling me I was off the hook. Hmm. I had been complaining to him about how the uh, plaintiff's witnesses were not being challenged in their climate, their ludicrous climate statements. And I offered my help and, you know, they said they were just fine. And I was very much concerned. I mean, I was prepared to handle whatever the, plaintiffs threw at me, but I was worried about how I was going to be questioned by Montana's lawyers, you know, and I gave them a script and PowerPoint presentations to use. And I said, well, this is how I should be questioned. And then I got a phone call and saying I was off the hook. And they you think also, they just folded. They just gave up. Well, OK, yes and no. Um, they really didn't want this to be about climate change. Nice. Well, that's sort of like denial because it was about climate change, you know, get over it. Uh, they wanted it to be about, you know, arcane policies and legal regulations and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, th they wanted to ignore the climate stuff, which is clearly <laughs> was the whole story. And the judge didn't want to ignore the climate stuff. So it was a bad strategy. But in fairness, you know, I can't think of any state attorney's office that would be prepared, <laughs> you know, to take on a case like this uh, without bringing in, you know, expensive outside counsel and a lot of expert witness and taking several years to really prepare. So 
If I could chime in for a bit. So in, in every case, all these lawsuits so far, the state has been loath to challenge their present, the other side's presentation of science. We, uh, the Heartland Institute actually uh, filed friends of the court briefs and uh, climate science uh, briefs in several lawsuits. And the state simply doesn't want to be uh, fighting the science. And in, in Montana, they have a law. They, they, try, they tried to get around their constitution by passing a law. And you can't pass a law that, that contradicts the constitution. And so they wanted to fight about the law. And the court said, well, this law is no good. It violates the constitution. Yeah. Um, yeah, they... And the approach that I took in my written testimony was to use graphs from NOAA, you know, no secret data, no fancy analysis, no cherry picking, and just plots that were published by NOAA, you know, so there should be no controversy about it. Um, you know, if you look at <laughs> these graphs, these are from NOAA. Um, where's the trend? The one about the heat waves. Let me see. I can't even quite read them. Uh, yeah. The heat waves, yeah, go scroll down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, this is the graph. I mean, look at the heat waves in the 1930s. They were far and away worse than what we, what the kids have seen in their lifetime. Of course, the the, um, the plaintiffs' witnesses cherry picked and only looked at stuff since 1970 or something like that. Oh, look at this big trend you know, completely ignoring what was going on in the first half of the 20th century. And you see the same thing for precipitation. The droughts were worse in the 1930s. Um, e even the um, extreme precipitation events don't show any trend. I mean, there's just like... There's you know, just... it seems to me like basically what we have here is a case of facts don't matter. Uh, yeah, facts don't matter. Um, exactly. And, and the, the expert witnesses, I was just appalled by the expert witnesses, uh, climate related, that the plaintiffs called. I mean, these were all professors in Montana, and a few of them have national reputation. They all happen to be ecologists. Yeah. Okay, They work in the climate world, so they call themselves climate scientists. But, you know, they, they don't understand. They know how to recite the alarmist talking points, but a lot of what they said was inconsistent even with the IPCC. Um, and they, you know, with high confidence that Montana's fossil fuels were damaging the children in Montana and that this was being caused by fossil fuels. And they were all closely coordinated, speaking from the, you know, the same hymn book every molecule of CO2 counts, you know, when, when we made, I and one of the other expert witness made the points that, you know, it takes gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere to even move the temperature a little bit. And in Montana, you know, these plaintiffs, experts are talking about every molecule counts. Well, the, the amount of fossil fuels emitted by Montana, you know, is a is contributing to a small fraction of a degree warming, you know, and so it's just meaningless. It, it's, but all of their experts says, yes, with high confidence, Montana's fossil fuel emissions are harming um, Montana's yeah. children. You know, and so you it, I mean, it defies logic. It defies common sense. Um, it's certainly counter to what's said in the IPCC. And how do you deal with that? And they claim, oh yeah, and, and they, oh, there's a consensus, you know, we agree. And they, they cherry pick certain statements out of the IPCC working group two, or that crazy synthesis report, which was just purely activism. It wasn't scientific at all. And claim, oh yes, you know, we're, we're this is the consensus is speaking, you know, we're with a consensus, but the, the details of what they said were at odds even with the IPCC consensus. And how they got away with that was basically by not calling me as an expert witness and not allowing me to um, coach the lawyers on how to uh, question these. Do you think this uh, is going to be challenged, Dr. Curry? Do you think this will be appealed? 
Oh yeah, they're they're appealing it, but apparently the um, the Supreme Court of Montana is equally activist as the judge, so I don't oh. think it will be returned. Um, so, you know, it's just insanity all the way down. Yeah, it's you know I, I've noticed a trend, and you pointed that out about the the ecologist. It seems to me that the most vocal um, people in the climate change debate, and also the ones that are the most uh, lack of facts are the ones that are in the biological and ecological uh, communities. They seem to be uh, hell-bent on citing soft science and opinion as opposed to actual hard science with numbers like you do. And as a result, they, they scream louder. You know, you know, they're talking about, you know, different kinds of animals are dying, the rivers are drying up, you know, the rivers are flooding, whatever it is. But they don't seem to have any coherent factual arguments to back up all the rhetoric. Yeah, and, and they, you know, they, they claim they're climate scientists and climate science is sufficiently broad to include ecology, but then there's expertise bleed over to talk about the causes of climate change and the attribution and all this kind of stuff. And they're completely ignorant on those topics. So it's just that there's, this is a real bad disease in the client, you know, who, who counts as a climate expert in what context, um, you know, where ecologists get to claim expertise on what's causing, you know, the recent bad weather. Well, that's a joke. Well, yeah. you know, why the ecologists are like that are, are the same reason that uh, environmental journalists, you know, the, the journalists that are called environmental journalists, they were called to it because they care about the ecology. That, that, that's that's their fascination. They they love the maybe you want to call it the environment. They like ecosystems. They like species. Um, and so when that is your focus, uh, you, you, you don't see outside that narrow field. Environmental journalists are the same way. They're journalists second and environmentalists first. Well, ecologists, e ecological scientists are environmentalists first and scientists second. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's why I think in part you get that. Can I ask you, Judy? Um, so there has been a ruling. It may be upheld by the Supreme Court when it goes forward. Um, but does it have legs outside of Montana? Because Montana is unique. I, I don't think it has much precedent, presidential value because Montana is unique in that it has provisions in its constitution for a clean, healthy environment. Other states don't have that. What are your um, thoughts? I agree with you there. I'm not even sure what kind of a difference it's going to make in Montana. I mean, the statute that they're talking about is just going to require a lot of additional red tape to talk about the uh, climate impact of whatever is going on. It doesn't mandate that you can't build fossil fuel power plants. All this additional red tape might actually slow down wind and solar <laughs> as, as well as um, fossil fuel plants. And it gives um, people who object to wind and solar another more grounds for challenging wind and solar plants related to environmental concerns and bald eagles and land degradation and so on and so forth. So I don't think this ruling is going to have, you know, the impact that our children's trust hopes it will. Um, and I don't think it's translatable, you know, to many other states. I think our children's trust is getting more clever as time goes on and, you know, trying to look at specific statues within um, state specific states to try to go after, but I, I don't think they're going to be any more impactful um, than the Montana, even if they were to win. Well, let's hope that this thing doesn't have legs and let's hope it uh, doesn't really go any place beyond Montana. As Sterling points out, it's unique because of that constitutional clause. I want to go on to our next topic which is the state of the climate summer 2023. Now, Dr. Curry wrote a really big deep dive into all of the data and so forth related to this. But I want to preface this by saying the media has gone absolutely berserk this summer over heat waves, record high temperatures, uh, you know, some of which weren't even real. Some of them were based on model data. Uh, high water temperatures, are a buoy in Florida, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. All these these things that they're grabbing onto to say, see, see, climate's a disaster. 
And that's what they've been pushing. They've been pushing disaster porn all this summer, which is why I've been thinking that maybe, just maybe, Biden might declare a climate emergency because the, the we've had this fever pitch of climate disaster porn all summer. So, Dr. Curry, what's your take on the reality of what really happened this summer? Is it something abnormal or is it just something where, you know, it's just a bunch of statistical heated up hype? Well, there, there are some unusual things going on, both with the internal dynamical circulations, natural internal variability. We have Hunga Tonga. We have the change in the ship fuels, which are emitting fewer sulfate particles. But at the end of the day, what's causing the recent uh, spike in global temperatures is more related to solar radiation than the infrared ration. If you scroll down to scroll so, sir, down, let me stop you for a second, real quick. How does that yeah. happen that we get more solar radiation? I mean, there, there's fewer been clouds. lots of talk. Hmm? Fewer clouds for starters. Okay, there you go. <laughs> fewer clouds, but we're also nearing the peak. We've had a little burst um, of activity from the sun, um, which peaked. Has calmed down a little bit, but but there's some contribution from the actual sun. But when we get, if you scroll down a bit to the top of the atmosphere uh, radiation flow, to this one right here, uh, just above, right there, you see that spike? Yep, yep, I, mean, I do. Spike, you know, and I saw that. This is the global mean net flux, okay, That's anomaly, so... 2000. So you see it's warming. And I said, well, what the heck is that? I mean, it can't be CO2. That's just a slow creep. So I asked one of my colleagues to dive into the series data and break down the long wave and the short wave components. Scroll down next to the next figure. Before we get to that, I, that, that peak that we had there at the end, um, the, it, it chose to be about a, a watt and a half per square meter above you know, norm or zero. That is fairly close to being equivalent to what they say the forcing from carbon dioxide is supposed to be, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a non-trivial <laughs> number. Yeah, it's a non-trivial number. Um, you can see the year-to-year -year variabilities. A lot of this is La Nina and El Nino, but if you scroll down to the next figure, okay, the red line, okay, is the solar output, and you see there's a little uptick you know, we're nearing the peak of the solar cycle. But if you look at the blue curve, that's the infrared curve. If, if it was dominated by CO2, you would see that blue line decreasing. Instead, it's slightly increasing. And the, the one that's decreasing is the uh, reflected solar. So what's driving this is an increase in the amount of absorbed solar radiation in the atmosphere. And this is Mostly, I mean, it can be caused by a couple things: of reduced reflectivity from snow and ice, um, reduced clouds, and there's another factor: is the re reduction from the uh, sulfate aerosols from the change in ship fuel. Okay, and if you scroll down, uh, I break it down into northern and southern. Okay, this is the ship fuel thing. You can see the ship tracks. You know, when a ship goes by, the exhaust from the fuel you know, leaves tracks, it condenses, it brightens the clouds. So if you get rid of that sulfate, you have darker clouds. And that's a significant, if you scroll down, um, across the mid-latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere where mo most of the sh ship transportation takes place. And so it's a significant impact in the mid-latitudes of the Northern Hemisphere. It is influencing mm. the North Atlantic temperature. Um, if you look at what's going on, so you would figure you would see a bigger ship track signal from the northern versus the southern hemisphere, and it's a little hard to discern um, because of there's so much noise, but you see a comparable uh, decreasing trend in both hemispheres. Hmm. Yeah, so if you scroll down, okay, so that's the top of the atmosphere. It gives us some clues. If you look at the surface energy balance, um, this gives us some bigger clues as to what's going on. 
So if you look at the upper left diagram, you see a, a red area um, in the mid latitudes of the Pacific and the Atlantic. And this is in part from the ship tracks. You see reduced cloudiness, but you see that the, you look at the diagrams on the right, this is a turbulent heat flux. I mean, this includes evaporative cooling and it relates to wind speeds. And you see that, you know, in the Atlantic, the winds have been really low and that's helped it to heat up. But if you look in the, in the Southern hemisphere, you see some crazy um, anomalous cooling from very high wind speeds that are coming from the North and are actually pushing the Antarctic ice, sea ice towards the continent, which is a big reason that the um, Antarctic sea ice is low. And you see that if you look at the lower right, the uh, net surface heat flux is dominated by the winds and the turbulent heat fluxes. And if you scroll down to the next figure, Uh, yeah, the next figure. Okay, this is the sea surface temperature. No, that, no, the, the, you just had it a minute ago. Yeah, that, that figure right there. You, you can see the footprint of the net surface energy balance, but you also see other things going on related to sea ice extent and ocean circulation patterns. But a big part of this is what's explaining what's going on in the uh, North Atlantic particular, which is of interest, <laughs> direct interest to me in terms of the hurricane situation, is that a lot of this is being driven by uh, low wind speeds with an extra boost from the uh, lower emissions from, from the ship fuels. So- All right, so the question I have real quick is, yeah. looking at all of this very valuable and pertinent data, do you see a footprint of humanity on this, or is this just nature doing what nature does? Okay, since 2000, okay, before 2015, you could sort of see the signals, you could see the global warming trend and El Nino, La Nina. Now, since 2015, you know, something has switched. I mean, you can see the long wave even going in the wrong direction, and it's really dominated by short waves. So I would say since 2015, any signal from global warming, it's just lost in the noise. You know, from the CO2 emissions, it's lost in the noise. And, and that right there is the money quote. Any signal from global warming since 2015 is lost in the noise. Now, when they're yeah. trying to do, when they're trying to do climate modeling, you know, forecasting stuff, are, I mean, what are the chances that they're going to include this kind of research in those models? They have so many um, factors that they include into them, but they weigh carbon dioxide so heavily but if what you're right. saying is correct, then carbon dioxide is such a minor player in the year-to-year -year trend that, I mean, how, how could they possibly expect to get it right when they are not taking all this stuff into account? Okay, well, the climate models definitely don't have the ship sulfate and Hunga Tonga. You know, that those are recent events. Um, but the natural internal variability, which is so important, models do include it, but they don't include it correctly and they don't get the timing right. So, and then if you average the simulations from a bunch of climate models, all the internal variability is uh, just lost in the averaging. And what you get when you average everything is just the externally forced signal. So all that internal variability, which, you know, is like dominating the show since 2015, you know, if you look at that from the climate model perspective, it just gets lost in all the averaging. Yeah, so it's just amazing what you've uncovered there, and you know the the detail um, you know, associated with you know things like winds and the solar radiation changes and all of this stuff. And this is all part of the Earth's system changing its character. It's not there's no as you pointed out there's no clear signal from any kind of a, a man-made global warming after 2015. So it's really fascinating. Uh, what we're going through is nature carrying on as nature does with some sort of an uh, interesting little experiment that we get to observe. You know, if this had happened 100 years ago, we would have no idea what's going on. But one of the things about climate science today, which causes it to be so alarmist, is we can see things we couldn't see 100 years ago or even 50 or 30 years ago. And as a result, people get alarmed when they see nature changing. So. Um, 
uh, at this point, would you prefer Dr. Curry to go on with your presentation, or should we start fielding some questions from some of our viewers? I have five minutes max, which I can stretch to 10 minutes if people are interested. So I, let's, let's open it up for questions, see if anybody right. has so I do have Thank you. Okay, so um, we've had people fielding questions in our comments section. Uh, let's see the first one. Chris Shattuck asks, what is the vertical variance in carbon dioxide density based on population density? You will likely find 400 parts per million is a poor average based upon populated area density, let alone density of the tropopause. Well, CO2 in the atmosphere, at least in the lower atmosphere, is relatively well mixed. Um, so the variations, you know, both horizontally and vertically, but the orbiting carbon observatory, a satellite that's been up for maybe 10 years now, it shows interesting seasonal local variations. I mean, not huge, like 10% kind of variations, you know, over big cities or a forest fire or over the, the Amazon forests. So you can see variations. So if you're interested in this issue, um, Google the orbiting carbon observatory and look at some of their images. It's really pretty fascinating. Okay, yeah, we've we've talked about that on WWT from time to time. So here's our next um, question. Chris Nisbet asked, how do you determine the magnitude of the effect on temperatures due to reduction in ship fuel sulfates or aerosols? But, well, the biggest impact on the aerosols is not the direct effect on the radiation, it's on how they modify the cloud brightness. Okay, so people have looked at, you know, using radiative transfer models and been estimated that globally, this is like 0.01 watts per meter squared. But um, the estimate in the uh, North Atlantic is up to two watts per meter squared, which is a pretty wow. big impact. Yeah, I remember uh, that graph you had showing the density of the tracks yeah, and so forth, that, so I'm not surprised. Look. <laughs> I'd like to say that regarding the ships, so I, I looked at that and it's funny because they're now talking about geoengineering to mimic what we were already doing with industrial emissions and ship emissions, right? They force the ships to become cleaner. That's great, but it's having an impact. It's, it's tending not to the right one, <laughs> not, not, not the one they want, right? It's, it's tending to reduce, uh, increase warming, just like they did when they got rid of uh, SO2, scrub SO2 from the, coal-fired power plants. Okay, that's great. It reduces the acid rain, but there's some evidence that it contributes, it, you know, it's, it's allowing more warming. So now they want to geoengineer, and what are, what's the geoengineering solution? Oh, let's put sulfates and aerosols into the atmosphere. So it's like... Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's when you poke a non-chaotic, you know, a chaotic, non-linear system like the Earth's climate system, you get a lot of unintended consequences. People are finding very surprising consequences from the Honga Tonga eruption, for example, like some of these are non-intuitive, but after you look at them long enough, they make sense. Um, so if we were to put, you know, blanket the stratosphere and mimic a volcanic eruption with sulfate particles, we have no idea what would happen, whether it would be bad, good or indifferent. So we're, we're playing with fire here. <laughs> Yeah. You would think All right. That, Next question. Oh, go ahead, Lynette. Sorry. Uh, you would think that when you discover, you know, unexpected consequences from Honga Tonga or from ship uh, emissions or something, that that would, you know, kind of rejuvenate some excitement in scientists and make them say, hey, we're obviously missing a big chunk here of information. So, you know, these are the unknown unknowns obviously. So we need to start investigating these more, but it seems like what they do instead is they try to tamp it down. They try to say, well, don't pay attention to that because, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and that, that strikes me as not very, uh, well, well, scientific. The, <laughs> the narrative is that these things reveal the impact of human cause warming, you know, that they, they twist the narrative to, <laughs> you know, in that way. Shame. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, curiosity and the climate cabal is dead. They really don't want to hear it. Okay, John Z says, what is the current AU measurement? And I'm not sure what that means. And how is this affecting the... I'm sorry, I don't know. 
Yeah, that one's that one. We, that one's just off the scale. So Catherine Burr asks: So will shipping go all green alternative energies? Maybe I don't know. Oh well, I have no idea. The current ship fuel seems to be greener than the previous ship fuel. Uh, you know, <laughs> people are proposing to have. Well, let's use wind to power ships. Well, they tried that in the <laughs> 16th century. It didn't work so well. Um, nuclear powered ships. Who knows? Who knows how this is going to go? Um, new technologies i'm a big fan of trying to develop and test new technologies to make things more abundant um less expensive and greener let's see what technology can provide for us you're muted anthony yes i was a mutant um time for us to go <laughs> And uh, Dr. Curry has to get on to some, something else. And of course, we've all got other pursuits where we're out there burning fossil fuels to save the planet. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being with thank us today, you. particularly Dr. Judith Curry and her fascinating presentation. I also want to thank Linnea and Sterling. I want to remind you to visit climate, et cetera, at uh, judithcurry.com and also visit uh, climaterealism.com, uh, climateataglance.com and energy at a glance.com where we tackle all of these arguments in a factual way which the left doesn't want to hear about so for dr curry linnea and sterling burnett i'm anthony watts senior fellow for environment and climate at the heartland institute wishing you a good day and a great weekend bye-bye thank you